There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Get It Off Your Breast, the podcast that digs into all the issues really getting under your skin. I'm Leanna Bird. And I'm Emma Gannon. And today we are joined by the incredible broadcaster, author, and the host of BBC Three Breakfast Radio Show. It is Clemmy Burton-Hill. So this week, we're talking about the gender pay gap and all the backlash of that in the media. Who decides what's best when it comes to culture and hijacking buzzwords such as empowerment? And joining us to discuss all this, our very special guest this week, it's writer, broadcaster and author of Year of Wonder, it's Kemi Burton-Hill. Hello! Hello. Thank you so so much. excited to be here. (laughs) It's so nice to have you on. We've had so many conversations where we've just been chatting and you've been such a lovely supporter of the podcast. I just love it. I was such an ardent admirer of season one. I'm very honoured to be on season two. So thank you for having me and thanks for inviting us into your lovely kitchen it's a very great pleasure thank you for coming yeah we turned up and we were like greeted with coffees and croissants it's very nice if you get used to this we could record every episode of your house Clemmy yeah on a Monday morning yes please (laughs) um so what is your topic that you want to get off your breast today so this has just been keeping me up at night I have to say I feel like there's just been this incredibly amazing energy over the last few months around things like the hashtag me too movement around things like time's up And it's getting a lot of oxygen, it's gathering a lot of headlines. I feel like on one level, it's wonderfully positive. And that makes me feel great, obviously, on behalf of women everywhere. And then you start to realise that the backlash against that is so widespread and so pernicious. And it's such an indictment of what we're up against. And sometimes I worry that all of the positive stuff that's coming out about that is actually distorting the reality of the fight that we still have on our hands. Uh, which is basically that it's still going to take 200 years at this rate for there to be parity between men and women. Mm -hmm. And I always worry about that stat as well, that it's probably talking about quite privileged white women as well. I don't know how much they're taking into consideration kind of intersectional issues around that statement. So I feel like there's been this, this, this wonderful stuff that gets a lot of attention. So just, you know, Oprah's speech at the Golden Globes, for example, or the Time's Up movement, things like Marky Mark... Uh, got a lot of attention for the fact that he donated in Michelle Williams's name his $1.5 million fee for doing the reshoots mm. for that movie, All the Money in the World. And those things tend to be like, oh, great, so this stuff is happening, we are moving forward. And then when you see what then ends up like crawling out of the woodwork again, uh, you realise actually like the, the progress that's really being made, I feel, is quite limited compared to the amount of attention that those stories are getting. Mm. I don't know what you guys think about it. I mean, obviously, like, it's a great thing that these movements are happening, and I'm not suggesting they should get any less airtime. Mm. Well, I mean, I wondered with the whole... I mean, I thought what Mark Wahlberg decided to do was fantastic, and I, I think what was shocking about that story is the fact that, in the first place, that somebody deemed him worthy of being paid for reshoots for a film and didn't think that Michelle Williams should be paid for that. I mean, that... 
in the first instance seems quite shocking. Um, but the fact that he obviously um, then decided to donate his um, what the fee that he was paid for that, which was I think one point five million, um, to the Times Up campaign is great. But I, I, I do wonder, like, how much of that. And I, I don't obviously know anything about him and his intentions, but I wonder how much of that comes from a really genuine place of going, God, that's awful. And how much of that is because there's this like online pressure and behind closed doors, yeah. people are actually going, hmm, well, you, know, you exactly. just don't know. He was publicly shamed yeah. into doing that. Let's not like beat around the bush. And what's incredible about that is that it was the same agency that represents Michelle Williams and represents Mark Wahlberg. So what the hell were they doing? Allowing Michelle Williams to do it for $80 per diem a day, which was what the union demanded so she got less than a thousand dollars for doing those reshoots yeah mm. <clears throat> sorry she got less than a thousand dollars for doing those reshoots and he negotiated well William Morris Endeavour and negotiated a fee of 1.5 million and also as I understand it he refused to give casting approval to Christopher Plummer who was replacing Kevin Spacey let's not forget the <laughs> because of the sexual harassment. I mean, these things are all so closely linked, it's unbelievable. But I just also was, I was so struck by the fact that Michelle Williams said, I would have done it for free. I was just so grateful that the film wasn't gonna go down the can. I just would have done anything to help Ridley Scott. That seemed to me, at the risk of sounding like I'm massively generalizing, like a very female approach to a problem. You know, she's a multi-Oscar nominated actress, a multi-Golden Globe nominated actress, including for this movie she got nominated. And she was like, what can I do? How can I help? Of course I'll do it for nothing. And there is Mark Wahlberg basically withholding his casting approval on Christopher Plummer in order that he can get 1.5 million bucks. And he didn't say from the outset, I want to get 1.5 million dollars in order to donate this to a charitable cause. So he was only doing it because he was called out on it. And again, I mean, obviously I can't speak for Mark, Mark Wahlberg, but I just think a lot of these things that come out, we've seen in the wake of the Carrie Gracie resignation at the BBC, where she quit her post as China editor over what she called a very secretive and uh, unfair, unequitable situation at the BBC in terms of the pay gap and equal pay, which is very different from fair pay. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about the fact that people are really committed to closing the pay gap, committed to the law, which is equal pay in this country. But basically, the onus is on women to find that stuff out. Mm -hmm. And I think we could look at the example of something like Iceland, who have made it now illegal for companies with more than 25 employers to not prove that they pay men and women equally. So the onus is now on them to have to prove it to the government, you know, rather than on women having to ask their male colleagues yeah. what they get paid mm -hmm. and then fight huge institutions or corporations. Do you that. know that not that long ago, and I think it was, um, I think it was Prue Leith and Sandy Toxburg, I think, were talking about that they remember a day when you used to advertise jobs, um, and like, I don't know exactly when they were talking about, but there they used to be jobs advertised in the paper, and on the, advert, on the advert itself, it would have two pays. So it would say, for men applying for this job, your salary will be this. And for women applying for your job, your salary will be this. Mm. So obviously we've moved on a bit since then, but I, like, that seems shocking in itself. But there's but clearly then, still, it's now, it's now hidden. Yeah. When you think of that, though, like I watched um, Battle of the Sexes. I was just about to say. Yeah. <laughs> and what was I, that? So it's a film, it's the film, the biopic that is uh, retelling the story of Billie Jean King, who was the female tennis player who, I mean, what's the guy's name? Who um, Bobby Riggs. Bobby Riggs. So basically they go on strike because obviously the women players are getting paid less than the male players. And then it ends with this big match, which is 
against Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. So it's like Battle of the Sexes because they win prize money at the end. I'm not describing this very well, but go and see the film. But essentially, there's a scene where she goes in to talk to the two like heads of the sports company or whatever and asks for the same amount of money. And it's like, what really got me isn't the fact that the men said no. That was annoying too. It was like the way they said no. Mm. It was like this really smug kind of arms folded white man in a suit who just finds it quite funny that Mm. that a woman is asking for more yeah it was not even there was no concept that he might pay a woman equally and he was saying well of course men are worth more than you they're more entertaining more people want to come and watch them and all the rest of it and she's like no we brought in exactly the same crowd and it was that was in 1973 Mm. We are talking 45 years later, and I saw on Twitter that in relation to the Mark Wahlberg, Michelle Williams furore, there was this Australian journalist, I think, uh, female journalist, who tweeted, well, I'm really sorry, but no one ever goes to the movies to see Michelle Williams, and Mark Wahlberg is box office honey. And it was like... That's just factually incorrect for a start. Someone had tweeted, like, retweet this tweet if you've gone to the movies because of Michelle Williams, and it got, like, I think it's on, like, 50,000 retweets at the moment. But it just, what amazed me about Battle of the Sexes, and I also, it was a brilliant film, and it just, like, really riled me, was then thinking, at least that stuff was out in the open. There's this line in the movie where Steve Carell, who plays um, Bobby Riggs, says you know, putting the chauvin... Uh, sorry, putting the show back into chauvinism. And, like, the people who came to support him at the match were holding up banners being, like, male chauvinist pig. Now I feel like there's a lot of talk being talked by men about being on side, and women, because this is definitely not just a gender... This does not fall, unfortunately, along gender lines. There are an awful lot of women who are being extremely unsisterly about this stuff, too. Now I feel like it's all gone underground and people are talking the talk, but then what we're really seeing when stuff like the Mark Wahlberg stuff comes out or we've had instances at the BBC as well where people you know, have perhaps inadvertently revealed how they really feel mm. about women being paid the same for the same jobs. That seems to me to be so much more insidious. Mm. Or like you had the guy who's the, the head of Tesco's who basically said that males, white men were an endangered species. And that's what I mean about... All of the oxygen and all of the headlines and all of the incredible energy that is now coalescing around these movements is enabling people like that to say men are an endangered species. He was making the point that there is now the pendulum has swung so much in the opposite direction that women and minority ethnic applicants are going to do so much better than white men. And his board is nine white men to three white women. I think also that you, what you were just saying there before about, you know, um, people who use this argument, and I've had this said to me a few times, and actually, even in my radio station, I won't name names, but one of my co-presenters, I was having a bit of a, a whinge about, like, you know, women's opportunities in radio and stuff, and he was like, yeah, but it's not it's not really, like, boss's fault, because ultimately, people like, it's been shown over the years that people like to listen to a male voice more than a female voice, and I was really shocked that he said that, but actually, and what you were saying there, well, well you know, um, someone like Mark Wahlberg pulls in more people, and you know, with the tennis, well, more people pay, would pay to go and see men's tennis. But then you have to like look at why that is as well. Yeah. Like, 
if let's just say let's let's presume like Mark Mark Wahlberg, I keep wanting to call him Marky Mark. Anyway, <laughs> does pull more people in, but why is that? Is that because someone is making a decision to do all the marketing based around him and put his face on it? Is it in the radio that the reason that perhaps when you do do a survey and if you know if if this is true, I haven't actually checked it out, but if what my fellow um, colleague says is true and people generally prefer to listen to a male voice. Well, why is that? Is that well, because, because they've been on the air? They've been, they've been on the air for more decades. Exactly. exactly. So, so you can't like you can't just go. Well, people like this, so therefore we shouldn't change it. It's like, but why is that? It's this whole patriarchal system that we've had for so long, where we are so used to what's familiar and what's normal, which is celebrating men, which is hero worshiping men in the movies, which is um, putting men on on radios, on on our TV screens. Um, that you can't blame even you know whether you're a man or a woman for yeah. that being the familiar. That's so we do, well, you wouldn't do a study with like eighty percent to twenty percent, and then be like, oh, the eighty percent is more like they like that more. It's like yeah. no, they've just seen that more. But I remember Emma when you had Rennie Edo Lodge on Control or Delete, which was such an amazing moment. I obviously adore the podcast anyway, but like that was such a landmark moment for me because I hadn't yet read the book, and I then went and read the book, and it was such. A telling moment because listen we've all got a lot to learn like we've got a long way to go these are as you say these are patriarchal attitudes that have or structural racism that has existed for so many centuries of course we see what we're used to we're conditioned to you know the leads in movies being hunky white men or whatever it is and I remember just feeling so unbelievably ashamed of myself when I read the book to just have to start questioning those attitudes in myself mm. of course I thought I'm a feminist I'm as like I'm, I'm pro any woman of any background getting ahead of course but when you start to like look at the structural racism and you look at the structural sexism and you look at what we're dealing with mm. you know we even if you you know even if you go in there with the best possible intentions you're still used to seeing men in those roles and then sometimes when you look at a woman doing it it can be a bit like oh what's mm. she doing there there's yeah. a brilliant example of this there's this amazing female conductor called Marin Alsop who's smashed like so many glass ceilings in the world of classical music which is unbelievably overwhelmingly white and male and has been for millennia and she said, you know, she's done all of this incredible thing. She was like the first woman to conduct the last night of the proms. She's uh, founded all of these fellowships for young female conductors, blah, blah, blah. Amazing things. And she says she got on a plane and she looked at the pilot and it was a female pilot. And she, she was like, oh, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get on a plane with a female flying my yeah. plane. And then she checked herself. She was like, oh what the fuck? But you know, I've, I've, yes. done, I've done that too. And I have to Can say... Can I not say fuck? Oh, no, no. Oh, sorry. Um, I've, I've, I've done that too and I think you know what you were just saying there about you know white men being endangered I do understand why but I like but I understand I, I do have empathy and understand I was like why. excuse me while I fall off my chair laughing yeah, but I understand why if you're a white male you must feel like right now like you're getting like a, a criticised from ev- an attack from every direction because Except because you're you've been really. so privileged for so long that mm. there's a much more conversation. So yeah. I, I, I can understand that kind of feeling of suddenly going, oh, I'm a bit of a victim. But it's not true. And, but I want to say it's not just men who are having this attitude. And like you just said, I had a moment when someone was mentioning, like we were talking about breakfast shows, and I was like, there's no, there, there are mixed shows. So there's there's all men breakfast shows. There's um there's men and women breakfast shows. There's no really like all female like yeah. three or four women like there is. It's quite common to get the men. And in my head, I went, oh, I don't know if I'd want to listen to that. It would be a bit like <clears throat> sort of screeching and gossipy. And I was like, oh, my God, what oh, have I just done? Because what, like when, this podcast? But, this podcast. <laughs> but, no, but that, this is one of the reasons that we wanted to do this, because yeah. I was like, 
And this was like a couple of years ago and I wrote an article because I was like so embarrassed of myself. Yeah. But it's just important that we remember it. Like when we're talking about these issues, yes. we're not just saying that white men have these attitudes. It's like ingrained in That's all of what, us. Mm-hmm. And I think what you said at the start is really important, Clemmie, too. Like no one's necessarily feeling like boohoo poor Michelle Williams. Like she's a very beautiful, very successful, very rich movie star. But what it is, is it's, it's because she's famous and because that situation gets a lot of press, it's highlighting an issue which is happening like on such a lower level across the board and it's those women that you have to think well, about well perfect case in point <coughs> this letter in Le Monde which was signed by a hundred women uh, all of whom were well I won't say all because I don't know every single one but I understand that they came from an extremely privileged kind of echelons of society and Catherine Deneuve was the one that like grabbed all the headlines um, but the point of this Le Monde article was they were basically saying you know this is absurd this is a witch hunt uh, this has got to stop, you know, we can't possibly have a situation where men can't hit on women, even if it's clumsily done. We have to make a distinction between actual sexual harassment and being hit on, you know, in a French way. It's like, <laughs> well, oh, duh, of course, like everyone knows the difference between the two and it shouldn't be incumbent upon a bunch of privileged white women to say, oh, those poor oppressed male sexual predators out there like need mm. our love and attention. Or thinking about the fact that Theresa May's reshuffle recently was billed as a massacre of the male, pale and stale. They literally used the word Mm. massacre in some of those headlines, which, taking aside the fact it's pretty fucking offensive to actual human catastrophes where people are actually massacred, uh, the government went from 113 white people to 111 white people. We went from 89 men to 82 men. And the average age went down from 52 to 51. The British government remains 68% male and 92.5% white after this supposed massacre of the male, pale and stale. And that's what, just to get back to my original point, I feel like there's all these amazing things happening around this stuff. But because they grab so much attention, it then allows some of those dinosaurs, for want of a better word, or sub-editors or commentators to paint this picture that is absolutely not representative of what is really happening so ladies we still Mm. have such a fight on our hands yeah you're so you're so right because actually when you see a positive headline you do think you can sort of sit back and relax a little bit more but we can't Mm. and actually just because in hollywood things may be shifting that doesn't mean that in the cleaning company or in a betting shop or on you know in real life, things are, you know, hopefully it'll filter down. That's the hope that we can all have. And when we say they're shifting, let's wait and see if they yeah. really are shifting <laughs> yeah, or yeah. if this is like incremental, mm. tiny things that get one mm. headline and everyone talking. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. So what I wanted to get off my breast today stems from a conversation that I had with a group of friends over the weekend, um, which got really heated. And I had to kind of check myself because I went in with a really strong opinion. And then by the end, I was like, oh my God, am I like a massive elitist snob, which probably the answer is probably yeah. But you know, you don't really think about these things. You just think that you have an opinion and then someone calls you up on it. So I'm just going to throw you guys a little bit in on what happened in the conversation and then we can get a bit deeper into it. We were talking about um, about culture as a whole and how because of Twitter, because of the internet, because of social media now, um, things are judged in a different way to the, to the way they used to be. So, you know, not so long ago, you would have like very specific tastemakers, whether it was in music, art, TV, um, who would say, you know, we are experts in our field. Um, we know that this band is doing something new and exciting and innovative and brilliant and should be played on the radio and should be promoted. Um, even if the rest of the mass population hadn't quite kind of caught up to that sound yet, they would still push it until everyone had heard it enough to go, yeah, this is brilliant. And that's how music kind of moved forward. And the same with with comedy, um, with art, you know. Um, and there was a, a survey out this year which said that um, the public got to vote and they said that the best comedy of all time was Mrs. Brown's Boys. So this is how the conversation started because me and a few other people were saying like, but it's clearly not the best comedy of all time. And one of our friends was going, but who are you, if, if more people now think it is the best comedy, then why is your opinion on what is good and what is quality more important than like the everyman's? And I was kind of saying, but it's not about that because I'm not an expert in comedy. It's about the fact that there has to be certain like parameters of quality. Like just because something's really, really popular, you can say it's the most popular. You could say it's the funniest because it makes the most people laugh. But to say it's the best, like surely it has to be like a level of like certain quality or innovation. And the problem is like if you if people are now being dictated, which they seem to be, like whether it's a TV channel or a record executive or whatever, like tr so trying to appeal instantly to like the Twitter massive, then you're never going to have these kind of groundbreaking, innovative experimentations in culture, which move things forward. And we're just going to keep repeating what is familiar and what is popular and what is good. So that, that was the, that was the But I basically ended up getting called a massive snob, a little snob in it. And I was like, oh God, maybe I am. So I had a bit of a moment of like, maybe I need to check my opinion. So I'm just throwing that out there to you two to get your thoughts. <laughs> So interesting. I've just been making this documentary series about technology and creativity and I'm like obsessed with this idea because I can see that in so many ways technology is, has opened up worlds that were previously have just been seen as like the preserve of a cultural elite. And I work a lot in classical music and the arts, which are like really criticised in that respect and mm. rightly so in many ways. Even though often the art themselves is really emotionally direct and people can respond to it, there's all of this cultural baggage that surrounds them. And so I'm really passionate about the idea that this technology particularly has opened up people's access to this stuff mm. and then it's down to anyone to respond in the way that they do to things and that's amazing and if that means that it's putting a whole load of you know classical music critics or art critics out of business because actually an influencer from a centennial generation or a millennial generation has actually got like a million followers and is saying like this artist is really cool and I, this exhibition is amazing you guys should come and see this rather than like someone leafing through the supp Sunday supplements and finding their you know critic and being told what to do like that's great on so many levels but I do think then we're like missing the also reality of like how the technological algorithms are playing a part in it because the idea that somehow this is a neutral platform and 
you know, what people love will find a way to the top is just not true because obviously, mm. like, there's vast amounts of money going on behind the scenes to make mm-hmm. sure that, like, the technology filters things in a certain way mm. and the way that the algorithms work is often, often quite a kind of Hollywood sequely t- type of approach. Mm. So you like that, we'll give you more of that. And this kind of funneling of, like, critical mass exactly. into that mm. thing. And, like, just because something's got loads of likes means that it is more likely to pop up in your feed and then it will get more likes Mm. and it becomes this kind of circle and so I don't it's very hard to kind of break this stuff down but like who gets to decide who gets to be the arbiter of taste Mm -hmm. so interesting I was just thinking about um the YouTube conversation at the moment because you know YouTube on many levels is more popular than TV like on the on a basic sort of stat level but then you've got people like uh, Logan Paul Paul Mm. Logan what's his name the Paul guy, the, Logan. the um, I think it's Paul. I think no, it's Logan, Logan, Paul. Logan, Paul. Logan Paul. Oh my God, who knows? Yeah, because he's got um, a brother called Jake Paul. I feel so. like I'm like turning into like a really cranky old lady, but um, obviously he recently did something terrible in the news where he basically videoed um, a dead body on his YouTube channel and it was really insensitive. And I think, um, I, I don't know the full details about it, but um, essentially he had to do like a massive public apology. And I was just thinking of, you know, the fact that you wouldn't have been able to do that on TV because, it, you know, someone would have stopped it at some point and gone, that's really insensitive. No one wants to see that. You're using your channel in the wrong way. I think he's got about 3 million subscribers, something like that. And I was just thinking about how, you know, gatekeepers are there for a reason, which is kind of backtracking on, like, my kind of point years ago where I felt so liberated that I managed to, like, get into the mainstream media via my own channels so in many ways, gatekeepers are bad, of course, because, I mean, we get to do this podcast. We don't need to go to a radio station. That's cool. Mm. But I also think that the responsibility is just not there. Yeah. Mm. But, I, but I think there's such a difference between, like, so anyone should be able to make stuff, which they can. I think it's so brilliant that someone sitting in their bedroom can now make a record and put it out, basically, and sounding so old saying record and make some music then go to the flicks <laughs> no but you know people can make content now like like we are doing now sitting around your kitchen table and also that other people can then go this is this is what I like and it becomes popular but I think there has to be like a distinction between what's popular and what is like quality mm. and that's where it comes down to it like what I think maybe it's like a, a matter of like how you define best because when you say like the best comedy of all time what it what makes it the best that the most people have laughed at it because comedy's there to make you laugh, right? If so, maybe then it is the best. I mean, if it's you know if m- most people are saying that's what makes me laugh, who am I to say that it's not funny? But then if you look at something like Monty Python, which wasn't everyone's cup of tea, um, what they did, like f- for me, and you know if, if I was talking to someone who knows, who's like an expert, knows a hell of a lot more about it than I do, and they could explain to me like why it was so good because it did this that was completely new or because it influenced this percentage of comedy to come afterwards yeah. and change culture. Like all these different parameters, that's kind of has to be seen as different to popular, doesn't it? But what is a critic? Because I would argue that like most of the food critics that I follow, I'm like, but that's your taste buds. Yeah. Like what is like how can you yeah. tell me what I should eat? But I'm not necessarily saying a critic. So like say for example, I just sat and someone who was just like some dude or some girl who just said to me I'm just a really big fan of comedy and this comedy that you don't find funny is really good because of this, because it's influenced, you know, like, okay, for example, people just do nothing, right? I think it's absolutely brilliant. I love it, right? Um, And if someone said to me, you know, since they've done that, it's then gone to, okay, I'll give you a better example. I'm not a massive fan of The Office. I know shock horror because everyone (gasps) is, but 
like just because it's not like my personal favorite like it has changed you still recognize comedy. that it was yeah. a game changer Absolute and it was brilliant executed and it was brilliantly yeah. written on the things so i'm not just saying like a critic but i'm saying like even if just a, a fan like a yeah. tv fan a comedy fan a music fan could say but i think just saying while it's liked while it's popular mm. to me doesn't make it necessarily good but that's maybe because i'm looking at it for a different point i think there's so it's such a complex question you know who gets to decide who gets to be the critic who gets to make the mm. taste especially as the kind of rules of the games are changing so quickly and brilliantly in many ways you know it's great that these platforms are opening up access they're opening up voices who normally would never ever have got a look in right so like mm. the younger generation women of color like women of different backgrounds like it's so great that they can now command influence and audiences in a way that like for so long was the preserve mm -hmm. of old like men sorry to like link it back to the other conversation um but it is it is a really I mean, we're in award season now like who gets to decide i mean i feel i'm on the council of bafta and i take that responsibility so seriously you'll see like stacks and stacks and stacks of dvds over there because i'm in voting season at the moment and there are moments if i'm being completely honest where it's like this is such a responsibility. Like the categories that I'm voting in are going to change how much money this film is going to make, how much this actress might then get paid in the next movie, how much, you know, mm. the, the, you have such a responsibility. And I, I take that really seriously. But why me? Like, mm. I mean, I'm very grateful and lucky to well, be on there. But like, definitely. I think that idea that somehow we get we have a right to make these decisions over anyone else. But, then, but then you guys are talking bad. about when something's been made, like the reaction to it and who gets to like say whether it's good or bad, which I suppose we were talking about a bit as well. But I think that's, that's fine if that's sort of out in public opinion. And it is. I mean, we've got social media, so it is going to be judged by, um, by public opinion in many ways. But I think what's more scary to me is, is the idea that the people who are actually deciding what to pick to even make Mm -hmm. is is now being dictated by the yeah. masses so like just as an example at the radio station i work at like i i've seen over the 12 years i've been there a shift in terms of the way people decide what music's going to be played from mm. i think this is good we all think this is good to this is going to chart like this this is yeah. being um, rating well when we do listener mm. meetings and yeah. people will like it and i think when the people who are actually making art making tv making music are trying to make something popular and trying to um, only and only commissioning work that they know is going to be popular, yeah. as opposed to especially the, that's when dangerous. what's popular is also dictated by eyeballs against adverts. Because yeah. when we're looking at those platforms, like let's not make any bones about it. Like we, you know, if you if you can get someone hooked in and like endlessly watching videos on a certain streaming platform, whatever it might be, against the adverts that can be sold against that, that's incredibly valuable for that company, mm -hmm. not naming any names, there's lots of people out there doing it. But looking at like music streaming, for example, as well, we now know that like with playlists that are algorithmically generated, there's so much data that is just looking at like at what point people flick to the next thing. So if you don't like grab someone in that first like 30 seconds, it doesn't even count as a play unless they mm -hmm. listen beyond 30 seconds. And so that artist only gets paid for each of those streams if someone listens beyond that 30 yeah, seconds which might be which might mean that then they're gonna think about Change the way they make they're it, making yeah. music based on that 30 mm. second thing now you might argue that all pop stars have always like wanted to like grab you in the first 30 seconds and that that's fine but what what's that doing to our attention spans that we 
can't necessarily listen beyond that. What's it doing to the way in which people are making art? Like, I think these questions the are Because so... the charts are sort of rigged, aren't they? Like, Ed Sheeran was in the... Like, he had, like, so many songs in the top ten in the charts or something, but some critic had said, well, actually, that was only on Spotify. Or it was something like they hadn't updated the charts to reflect the wider... Mm the wider sort of but it's also down to it's down to who people want to promote like you know yeah. we, we know yeah. we all know that if if a radio station like for example radio one decides to back an artist and plays it again and again and again and plays it like every hour that that will become ingrained in people's heads they will love that song and they'll buy, and it will be yeah. it'll do really well so it's like it, it's to do with i remember writing it as well when i wrote my first novel a few quite a few years ago now i remember being like really stunned that the publishers not necessarily in this case, but like the way that publishing worked was that the money that they threw behind a marketing and PR budget was based on the books that they thought were going to do best anyway. So they would spend like the majority of their advertising marketing budget on like Harry Potter, say, which was obviously going to do really well in any case, so that it would sell even more, which mm. meant that like if you were a first time novelist or a literary writer or you weren't someone who was going to like hit the big time, they weren't going to spend the money on promoting mm. that because it was a kind of loss leader. They'd put the money into promoting mm. the things that were going to do really well anyway. I mean, the like PR budget on Ed Sheeran must be drastic compared to mm. young emerging artists, I've noticed that Justin Timberlake's got himself some Instagram adverts at the moment. I'm like, <laughs> mate, you've got 40 million Instagram followers. Like, you don't need the ads. But I was thinking, um, actually, because I found out the other day that um, some publishers buy the bestseller slot. And oh, I don't really? know if that's been cut now. But it, it's even so crazy, but you, they, but they, can they buy also buy the like, um, like if you go the into Waterstones, they buy the yes. like um, seller recommends all yeah. of those like lovely handwritten notes that you think are like really curatorial, but they also actually like can be bought or like the position on the stack when you walk in, mm. facing outwards in a shelf. All of those things can and be so bought. Some publishers can buy out like um, a wall in Sainsbury or something like that. And you were just talking about awards season, and this is going to sound so naive, but I didn't even realise until like a couple of years ago that for the Oscars, like, you have to do, like, a full-on campaign yeah. and, like, throw a lot of money behind a film if you want it to get nominated. Like, you can't just make something absolutely yeah, brilliant. Yeah, guess who was the king of that? Harvey Weinstein. I mean, he was yeah. known as being the ultimate publicist for and campaigner for his movies, which, let's not forget, like, he made a... He produced an awful lot of excellent movies. But, yeah, it's, all of this stuff can be bought. Mm. But, you know, so can front covers of magazines by really good publicists. You know, the, the whole thing becomes... This idea that there's kind of neutral taste and that talent will out is obviously just completely fallacious. Yeah. And I'm and we haven't even touched on like nepotism or anything like that, which, you know, it, you can't help it. And a part of me, do you remember when Brooklyn Beckham kind of got that like massive Burberry oh, yeah. deal and like to take all his photos and stuff? But like if you're a photographer, you're gonna look at someone like that and think, you know, you got that for a reason. But then at the other part of me thought, do you know what? You go get it. If you've got the tools in the toolkit, just go. Well, and do I think it. the thing is, it's the balance. So it's like I don't mind someone like that, you know, doing well. But he's obviously got a profile, so he's going to sell a certain number of photography books, and so of course a company is going to want to cash in on that and you know be a part of that. As long as they also have a department which is there to promote new talent and you know to find good stuff and isn't just trying to recreate something that was popular in the past or or, or get you know sign up someone who's got a certain number of followers online already and actually goes this is really really good they may not even have an online media account no one knows who they are but come on let's push this because I believe in it mm. and that's what I'm worried yes. we are losing yeah and what's sad about that is that I feel like in the early days of social media and digital platforms that was a real opportunity for people to just put their stuff up there upload it and be 
legitimately found mm-hmm. in a kind of like, like MySpace, like MySpace, yeah. you know, and that was a way of like a serendipitous encounter ah, the with something. Of Whereas <laughs> now was, this whole thing yeah. is so manipulable and so manipulated, especially yeah. when it comes buying to social followers. media, yeah. buying followers, Instagram, you know, the way that these things work. And I find myself like, you know, I'm pretty ancient these days. I think we're just about classify as millennials having been born after 1980 but only by like the the skin of our teeth but like okay fair enough I'm not a digital native but I'm you know obviously very literate in this stuff but I feel like I'm quite well versed in how the kind of engineering and architecture behind it actually works and I still get suckered into being like oh you know I'll follow a little rabbit Mm. warren down something that's like had loads of likes or keeps popping up in my feed or whatever. So even when I feel like I'm very vigilant about not being manipulated by it, I totally am all the time. Mm-hmm. So a like, lot of if new you're brands young... buy followers so that if something follows you and it's got like half a million followers, you'll be like, like oh, cool, cool. Yeah. this must be great. Mm-hmm. But I think, um, I guess so it's just cynical. being aware of it it's and so then cynical. kind of um, supporting musicians buying proper books from independent bookshops like all of this stuff helps I think but also going back to what I originally said I do think like what I did which was slightly dismissing something because it's not my taste which is something that would appeal to like a mass audience more is also wrong like you shouldn't just dismiss that as like not good just because but Mrs. Brown is terrible okay we all agree on that then okay (laughs) cool so I was right all along to everyone who was arguing with me over the weekend (laughs) if you're listening right now please can you comment on our iTunes reviews if you like or dislike Mrs. Brown (laughs) boys let's see yeah and also just to say any of the things that we are commenting about like please do rate and review and you know mentioned in the comments feed but you can also if you want record a little voice memo 15 to 20 seconds and you can email it to us at get it off your breasts at gmail.com and we will play it on one of the following episodes um if you have anything like you particularly want to say or even something new that you want to get off your breast that we haven't talked about yeah, please have a rant the topic that I wanted to get off my breasts was the word empowerment, which I've become quite allergic to, and I feel kind of weird about even that. So I was writing an article for a women's magazine recently, and I said something was empowering, and I felt really icky, and I deleted it, and I put another word in. And I was thinking... What word did um, you use instead, just out of interest? I think um, I said that the... I was talking about the film Suffragette, and I was saying that it was really empowering. And I was like, oh, that's so icky. I was like, they did so much for us. Why am I calling it just empowering? Because mm. that sounds like buying a new handbag. So well, I said, problem, so I said it? it was important. I think I changed the word to something a bit more. You mm. know. Anyway, Dolly Alderton, someone I follow on Twitter, had said, um, as someone who receives about 35 press releases a day, I think we play a bit loosey-goosey with the phrase empowering women. I love that phrase, Lucy Goosey. Um, something can be beneficial in its own way without necessarily being empowering, like a new handbag or a miniature eyeshadow or lube. I just thought empowering was, lube. I, I just thought, I just thought it was really funny so because I also true. receive tons and tons of press releases every day, and at the moment um, we're recording this in January. Um, it's incessantly awful. Um, so yeah, I just feel like why can't I say something's empowering without feeling weird at the well, moment? Well, it's so bad that it's been hijacked because actually the suffragism movement was literally empowering. Yeah. It empowered women to have the vote. It couldn't be more empowering. But that word has been so hijacked and it annoys me so much when this happens with words that have got so much value in and of themselves and then are rendered utterly meaningless by 
endless misuse by PR mm -hmm. companies and all the rest of it. And I don't know how you stop that from happening because, of course, once something enters the cultural zeitgeist and it starts being used and it's a buzzword and la la la, but I mean, it is clearly absurd. Yeah, calling... because the Guardian had done that article a while ago called um, there was some, it was called something like the rise in femvertising. Which kind of Kill me I know now. it was really great. Oh my god, excuse me, I just throw up in my mouth. It was so disgusting. But I guess they were commenting on the fact that if you're a big advertising agency and you're all getting around the table, what's really gross is I bet there's like a big white man in a suit who's like, Oh, feminism's on brand, ladies. Yeah. Let's wrap it up with, you know, this girl can. I yeah. love that advert. But now because of just everything, I even find that a bit a bit kind of weird now. Do you know what I really liked the other day? Um, Monroe Bergdorf, who was um, a guest of ours in season one, um, she did a really great, she, I mean, she does a hell of a lot of really great posts, but she did a really good one where she was talking about like to, to brands and companies out there looking to work with her. Here's some sort of guidelines mm. of like how not only to work with her, but how also like to be supportive of transgender people. And one of the things she said was um, just by booking me or another transgender person, you are not fulfilling your quota of like what is yeah. now considered like oh tick we've got like a we're so woke person. we've got yeah. Monroe on the panel mm. exactly um, shall I read the definition of empowerment I feel yeah. like to have this discussion we need to know what it like should mean as opposed to what it's become to me so this is like the Oxford dictionary blah -de -da. Um, it says uh, authority or power given to someone to do something like mm. vote yeah mm. and the other one is the process of becoming stronger. And more confident, especially in controlling one life, one's life and claiming one's rights. So, yeah, I think, like, saying that lube and handbags are empowering can't be... is definitely bullshit, and long And, like, expensive underwear is sort of being branded as empowering. And I guess sort of the naked selfie on Instagram by, like, em Emily Ratteruski, or whatever yeah. she's called. In spaghetti. Um, she's saying that, spaghetti like, hoops. getting her body out is empowering. <clears throat> For her, it might be. yeah. Well, I think that just is such a fascinating one as well. Like the whole idea that, let's say, Kim Kardashian or whatever re represents like the ultimate embodiment of like female empowerment. I'm not criticising that particular human or anyone for doing whatever they want to do. Like I just feel like every woman has to express themselves in the way that they want to or need to. But making women in turn feel... Like they either have to empower, be empowered by like posting pictures of themselves naked, or I, I don't know. There's a something see, off about it because again, it comes back to this idea of like I can just see a whole load of white men like rubbing their hands in glee, is, going, "Yes, yeah. we're empowering women, so they can but get their tits out." Exactly. All, but also, isn't it quite patronizing? Is three empowering? I mean, no. Yeah. But, but, but in a way, I, if you, I feel like I'm all, like this is going to sound really cringe, but like I feel quite empowered already. I don't need further empowering all the fucking time. Yeah. Like. I don't want brands to be like, oh, you, Emma Gannon, in, you know, on the newsletter, you know, everything's so personalised yeah. now, like they yeah. target you. And it's like, why are you trying to empower me? Because maybe I'm feeling good today. Yeah, but, but also, <laughs> because so it's I the think... same old advertising bullshit. Like you need this in order to feel well, this. So yeah, spend your money so then you will be this. It's, it's the whole like, consumer thing. It's like a product can't make you feel empowered. Like you just said, Emma, you're feeling quite empowered at the moment. That's probably because of your work life, your personal life, like you feel in control of, I mean, I'm not, maybe, I'm maybe you don't, but <laughs> like, it's the new food. When I'm feeling empowered, it's maybe because I've gone into a meeting and I fought for something that was a little bit hard to, to fight for, or I've asked for a pay rise when it was a bit tricky, yeah. or I've stood up for someone that was um, needed standing up for and, you know, 
and for whatever reason couldn't stand up for themselves. Like those kinds of things make you feel empowered, not buying something. Well, that's the problem. And I actually feel like when I do buy stuff, I usually walk out of the shop feeling slightly sick because I've spent money on something that I really didn't need. You feel unempowered. I don't need another pair of trainers. I don't need another leopard print coat. I don't need another striped t-shirt, whatever it might be. And so me being like, yeah, it's my money. I earned yeah. it. I can spend it on what I want. Like I have earned my own money since I was 13 years old. Like I grew up with a single mum who was like, it is all about what you like. You do you, basically. Was an, she was an early adopter of that kind of philosophy, if not that now slightly nauseating phrase. Um, so I've always felt it's really important that women can go and spend their money on whatever they want. Uh, so I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't be buying handbags or shoes or lube or whatever. But the <laughs> idea that somehow that leads to empowerment is clearly such bullshit. And I, I think keep also, saying bullshit. Sorry, I keep swearing. But <laughs> swearing it, is we empowering. Love but isn't that down to also like so the whole um, the whole like the way that brands what we was you know what we were saying earlier the brands try and like hook on to like what's like in trend now like that Pepsi advert that Kendall Jenner was a part of was just prime example of that. It's like activism yeah. is now the new thing of 2017. Yeah. So let's like let's cash in on that. And it's like you you know something like empowerment, something like activism. It goes so deep. It's it's so political. It's so personal that like trying to attach a brand to it feels really icky. And I think even when you look at like what we were talking about, you know, with naked selfies, like, again, you know, do what you want. Like you are perfectly entitled to live your life exactly as you want. But I don't know how empowering it is someone with an absolutely incredibly hot, like classically exactly what is like male and female fantasy body, putting that out there, how empowering that necessarily is. Like if someone who has got a very untraditional body um, and is really proud of it and put a naked photo of themselves who was perhaps larger or hairier or darker or you know or more scarred or something like that put their body on I would probably see that as empowering yeah, in a way because so it's, it's saying to other women out there or men out there um you know don't feel ashamed of your bodies just mm. because it doesn't fit, fit a norm I don't I'm not ashamed of mine I'm proud of mine and I can see how that can mm. be empowering because sometimes when you see so like some women do you just go if you didn't look that hot, you would yeah. not be putting that out there. And actually, you just want to get loads of people going like, you're so hot right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is what's also- amazing about like, the body positive movement and things like warrior women, all that stuff. I, like, I don't know if you saw that on Instagram. Oh, yeah. I think especially like as a mum, <laughs> God, terrible phrase. But, you know, like the, the kind of self-loathing of like the postpartum body, for example, mm. especially when what we're bombarded with is images of like, Kate Middleton coming out of the Lindo wing with her blow dry and her tiny little, like, you know, body. Mm. Or, you know, celebrities like, oh, they've lost all their baby weight within, like, one week of, you know, whatever. And it's like, again, it's a bit like, I I know this stuff isn't true and real, but it still gets to you. Of course it does. So I feel like there have been a lot of movements on Instagram Mm. around body positive. Do you know know what was really annoying, by the way? I'm going to sound really bitchy, right? But there's one article that really annoyed me because there's loads of women who have a baby and they'll be like... This is, this is a real body after having a baby. These are my scars or this is my saggy skin or whatever else. And that, to me, feels really positive. For me, what this mm-hmm. all boils down to is can we just stop judging other women's bodies? Like, can we just stop judging each other? Like, it doesn't matter what any of us look like. Yeah. And I just feel, again, like all of this plays into the hands of advertisers, of corporations, of people who it is in their interest for women to be pitted against each other and keep judging mm-hmm. each other. Can we just please have an amnesty on like any kind of judgment yeah. about women and their bodies. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. 
Cool. And just on one last note, I wanted to say, because um, I was going to talk about slogan T-shirts and like how, you know, brands kind of capitalise on them. And I was thinking we should all, I think this is the theme of this episode, is like do a little bit more research because there was a slogan T that had like I'm a feminist on recently. And basically it, it, they'd found out that actually there was a lot of women in other countries making those T-shirts for like no money. And I was mm. like, that's not very empowering. Yeah. So it's kind of... Um, when you do buy something, I do think we've got a little bit more of a responsibility now to, to sort of just see what's going on beneath it. But Hell yeah. Anyway, thank you so much, Clemmy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Liana. I, I mean, I could definitely have continued ranting about this stuff all day That's long. the hardest bit about this podcast, isn't it? Is like not doing it for five hours. And I know that we, we obviously get to sit and talk loads. And as we said a bit earlier on in the episode, um, no doubt listening to this at home, there's loads of things you're like screaming that you wish you could say, or even other topics that you really want to get off your breast. So please do email us, get it off your breast at gmail.com. And we can record a little voice memo on your phone about 15, 20 seconds and give you a chance to have your say too. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Clemmy and also to you for listening to that episode. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it. Um, If you are liking uh, these podcast episodes, please do click to subscribe so you don't miss next week or any other episodes. And next week, we are going to be joined by the amazing comedian and actor, Lolly Adafope. See you then. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.